Father God, we thank you that we meet in your presence today. Father, we thank you for the words that we've just sung. Your word is living, your word is sure. Father, I pray that as we read your word today, that we would hear what you have to say, not what I have to say, and that your uh, name would be glorified uh, as you transform us into those that you would have us be. Amen. Well, let me uh, add my welcome to Tom's. Uh, It's great to be able to meet together today and study God's Word. It's a real privilege. And if you've ever wondered why at the beginning of each sermon we say, do keep your Bibles open, I hope that these little studies uh, in Jude uh, have made it it clear why we do that. Um, It's key that we know what the Bible is saying, not what the person at the front uh, thinks it's saying. So do please keep your Bibles open today. Well done if you've come back after last week. Uh, Not the easiest passage, um, but I'm very grateful to Alex for his expert guidance through that text. Uh, It's crucial that we understand it, and I hope that today we'll see why Jude devotes so much time to what's a rather unpalatable discussion in today's age, the judgment of God. But he's got some great encouragement for us uh, in light of it. it. So if you're joining us for the first time today, we're we're studying the book of Jude. It may not be something that you've looked at before. Um, And he's writing to a church, or perhaps a group of churches, with some urgency. His purpose is uh, stated in verse 3. He's keen uh, that uh, they contend for the gospel. He asked them to contend for the gospel, uh, uh, for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. Uh, Contend really means to strive or to struggle. Um, Tom gave us, I think, that good illustration in the first week, um, that it's a little bit like a, a rugby pack at a scrum. Everyone is straining, every muscle, every sinew is urging Uh, the pack on. They're trying to fight uh, to win that scrum. And that's a little bit uh, like what Jude is asking us to do. And what is this faith that Jude speaks of? Well, it is the good news of the whole Bible. It is our creator God's call to turn back from our rebellion against him. He wants to forgive us our rebellion by the death of his son Jesus as he dies on the cross, taking the punishment our sins deserve. He declares us righteous, and he gradually transforms us by his Spirit into the image of Christ. And one day, we will be like Christ in heaven. And crucially, as we were remembering at the beginning of the the, uh, service, God does this by his grace. Uh, It's his free gift. Uh, We don't contribute anything to that process. But Jude is worried. He's concerned because godless men have uh, secretly slipped into the church. You'll see that in verse 4. They've slipped into the church and they've changed the grace of our God for a license for immorality. They deny Jesus Christ is our only sovereign and Lord. What they were teaching uh, was not quite the gospel of faith. It appears there was a casual attitude to sin, as if grace meant the Christians didn't need to worry about going on sinning. After all, God's promised our sins. What's the problem? But Jude goes on to paint a terrible picture. He recalls some of the worst villains of the Old Testament, their rejection of God, and God's judgment that rightly follows as a consequence. And chillingly, he likens these men to those godless men who've slipped in amongst them, and they're going to destroy the church if they're not careful. And we'll see that later on. I don't know if you've ever been to the Sistine uh, Chapel in the Vatican. Uh, It has vast high ceilings which are covered in absolutely beautiful frescoes, not bad for someone who was said to be a sculptor. 
Uh, they draw millions to see them year by year, and the work took about four years to complete. And whilst Michelangelo did most of the work, he obviously did have some assistance, and they used to work up on high platforms, uh, painting the ceiling. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, one day, he had finished a particularly large uh, piece of work when he stepped back to admire what he did. And as he stepped back to take in what he had, <coughs> what he had painted, uh, the assistant that was with him noticed that if he wasn't careful, he was going to fall off the back of the platform. The assistant was anxious that if he cried out or moved towards him, that he might take a step, step back and fall off the platform. So his assistant just reached up to the painting and put a dab of paint on the work that Michelangelo had just finished. Well, Michelangelo was furious. He stepped forward to ask him what he was doing and therefore was saved from falling off the platform. And Jude 2 wants us to see the danger uh, that faces the readers of his church and to alert them. I can't quite decide whether I want to be in the prayer meeting where this letter is written and, uh, read out. No doubt it was rather uncomfortable as they e eagerly opened the news from Jude only to find the news about the autumnal berry jam-making event had been displaced by an altogether more serious narrative. Jude is sounding the alarm bell loudly and clearly. Wake up! Can't you see what's going on around you? You are in grave danger. Well, I wonder how we would feel in their position. How could we have missed this? Are we blind, stupid? Maybe both. Jude isn't even here, and yet he can see the danger that we're in. Maybe Jude's got this a little bit wrong. What are they to do? Perhaps it's time to move to another church. Perhaps they should leave the church altogether. After all, they would have sacrificed much to be here. And well, the whole thing seemed like a bit of a sham. Well, this is where Alex left us last week, and I promised you some encouragement, and Jude delivers. Uh, there's a little pink uh, sheet in your, uh, in your sermon sheets. Uh, you can take some notes there, and we're going to move on to that first point, a predicted scenario. Turn with me to verse 17. Note how Jude addresses them. Dear friends, no accusations, recriminations, but dear friends. Just as he addressed them at the beginning of the letter in verse 3. And not only friends, but in verse 1 and 2, those who have been called, who are loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace and love be yours in abundance. Jude is writing not to accuse them, not to chastise them for what they haven't done, but to lovingly warn them. He wants to make it clear that he's in partnership with them, and he's at pains to point, out, uh, point them to the wonderful assurance of the very faith that he's asking them to contend for. There are dangers to be faced, but, uh, but you have all you need to face them, says Jude. And then what he, uh, he goes on to say, Remember what the apostles of our, uh, of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. Not you fools, how did you miss it? But dear friends, the apostles told you these men would come. Don't doubt what you know is true because of these men. The same apostles that taught you the faith told you these men would come. This book is both historical but also profoundly contemporary. Today, we particularly face the God is only love gospel. You can really believe and do whatever you choose, as long as you're driven by love. After all, God is love. It's all about inclusivity and diversity. We've just celebrated 500 years since the Reformation when Luther reclaimed this gospel that Jude speaks of. 
from a works-based faith where we could earn our way into heaven. There are countless others, and it won't surprise you to see that these same false gospels recur again and again throughout history. Well, in the midst of these corruptions of this gospel, this faith, it is easy to press the panic button and wonder what we'll do. How did it come to this, we ask ourselves. But Jude says, don't be surprised. Maybe not today, but someday. If not to your church, then the one down the road. But the scoffers will come, and they will look like the church. They could be anyone. It could be your small group leaders. It could be your elders, your ministers, your bishops. Navy ships today still employ lookouts. For all their very detailed mapping, their GPS, their radar, they still have lookouts. Because it's easy to miss things. Little boats, big waves. Uh, We need to be on the lookout. If we're not looking for these people, we will not see them when they come. They too will slip in amongst us silently. And having told them that these men are here, that they will come, he equips them to discern who they are in verse 19. They bear three characteristics. These are the men who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts, and do not have the spirit. How we spot them will take careful consideration, and the first two hallmarks are likely to be held together. First, they bring division, and I take it to mean that this will be division within the fellowship, amongst those who are proclaiming Jesus as Lord. We know as Christians that our faith will divide. That is the teaching of Jesus in Matthew chapter 10. The gospel is the call to follow Jesus rather than ourselves, so that we can look forward to eternity rather than judgment. And there are people uh, in this congregation who will tell you what the cost of following Jesus is. It has divided them from their friends and their family. But if we're following Christ, we're to be united. uh, And the false gospel threatens that unity. In contrast, the false teachers follow mere natural instincts. What they do and teach is informed by feeling, not by the Bible. And yet the Bible warns us that our natural instincts are sinful. Tom reminded us two weeks ago that sin is deeply attractive to us. And if your experience is anything like mine, we are absolutely brilliant at justifying our sinful behaviour to ourselves. So as you listen to sermons week by week, go to small groups, read books, articles online, listen carefully to what is taught. Does it fit with the Bible? Is it in line with the teaching of the Bible? If in doubt, ask someone to show you in the Bible how they've drawn their conclusions. The Bible is God's primary means of speaking to us, by tell- uh, of telling us his truth, and we must devote our time to knowing it and what it says. Finally, Jude says they do not have the Spirit. Now, we ought to be very wary of judging individuals. That's not something that we would typically do. But Jude is content to say that these men do not have the Spirit. And we may not be in a position to go this far, but that is why he is writing so urgently. And in our next few verses we will see the consequence of their teaching. One of the reasons they are so dangerous is that outwardly they appear like us. They claim to follow Christ, and as such, they can neither be trusted nor ignored. So friends, we have been warned. These men will come, and don't be lulled into thinking that it could never happen here. Rather, be on the lookout and be ready when they do come. So number two, a practical solution So having revealed uh, this threat to them, Jude tells them what to do about it in verses 20 to 23. He starts with actions for themselves um, and then turns to the care 
of others. Verse 20, but you, dear friends, build yourselves up in your most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit. First and foremost, they are to build themselves up in their holy faith. Judas reminded them here, I think, of two aspects of their faith. It is primarily God's faith. It is holy. Um, It's not for us to alter or improve upon. Um, But it is also their faith. God has given it to them, and he's brought them from death to life through that faith. And now it is to transform their lives. And note how this is not an individual effort. It's not something for us to do on our own. It's something to do together. Uh, He said, build yourselves up, not yourself. Um, It's a corporate endeavour to be done by all of us. Now, foundations are fundamental. When I first arrived at St. John's about 20 years ago, uh, the uh, the building looked beautiful, but it was crumbling. That corner of the church was heading down the hill. That corner of the church was broadly staying where it was. And the reason for that was that there weren't really any foundations underneath the church. It strikes me as being slightly extraordinary, but apparently not, not that uncommon. And so if we hadn't done anything, sooner or later the church building would have collapsed. And so at great expense, foundations were laid and the building was repaired. The foundations are absolutely crucial if this building is to stand. But you would be rightly perplexed, having spent a lot of money on putting in proper foundations, if we just left it as a concrete slab and met here with some sort of uh, chairs in the open air just to sort of meet week by week. The purpose of the foundations is to have a building sit on top of it. Now, Dick Lucas uh, always used to teach that the two main words used about the church in the New Testament are evangelism and edification. Evangelism uh, involves calling people to turn back to Christ so that their sins may be forgiven, and that is our foundation. But God's people that he calls together are his church, and they are to be edified, they are to be built up, to be transformed into Christ's likeness. So I think one of the questions for us is, are we serious about building each other up? We must not neglect foundations, for they are absolutely crucial. The building cannot begin without them. But do we seriously take the building? Uh, How serious are we about building? Our faith is not just the spiritual equivalent of the monopoly card, sort of get out of jail free, uh, ready to be whipped out when needed. No, God's desire when he calls people back to them and forgive, uh, him, him and forgives them, is to make a holy people for himself. It's for his glory and for us to bring others to him. We are by no means the finished article, but can we see progress in our building work? As we look back to before the time when we knew Christ, are we being transformed from where we were and instead becoming more like Christ? Are we all committed to helping one another in this work. Secondly, Jude calls them to pray, to pray in the Holy Spirit. Now, there's no suggestion here, I think, that there's any special type of prayer, such as praying in tongues. It is simply the prayer of a believer. And all those trusting in Jesus received the gift of the Holy Spirit, God himself dwelling in us. The Spirit's work is to refine us, to mould us, and change us as we seek to gradually turn away from our sinful lives and to look forward to the salvation to come. In Romans 8.26, Paul tells us, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. See that this is something the false teachers can't do. They don't have the Spirit. He really is a secret weapon for our faithful believers, 
as they face these false teachers. And what a wonderful promise for Jude's readers in the face of such danger. What should we pray? Just pray. The spirits will do the rest. Now, if you're like me, it's rare to find a Christian who does not wish that he or she should pray more or pray more easily. It's certainly true for me. But Jude reminds us that this is crucial. It's not a spiritual extra. It's one of the chief means of guarding our faith. And if we are to pray in the Spirit, then our prayers should be more than just another thing on the to-do list. It needs to be a priority, whether we're praying alone, um, but also praying together. And we can have the confidence that our prayers are heard. And we can marvel at this early uh, reality of this restoration of our relationship with God that he promises. So in 10 days' time, we're going to be meeting for our weekly, uh, a monthly prayer meeting. Make that a priority to get to. That's what Jude would ask us to do. Meet together, pray, pray in the Spirit. Well, thirdly, Jude urges his readers to keep themselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. That's verse 21. Now, this might be surprising if you've been here uh, all three weeks, because in verse 1, Jude uh, wrote of them that they are those who have been called, who are loved by God and kept by Jesus Christ. But now Jude seems to be saying that they are to keep themselves in God's love. But this is Jesus' teaching. This is John 15, verses 9 to 10. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. Jesus doesn't need to earn the love of his Father, but the natural consequence of that will be to be obedient to him. And Jesus was obedient to him, even death on the cross. Just like the teenager who you have to beg uh, to have a shower, to change their clothes and wear deodorant, when they find love, you'll find all of those things happen much more easily. It's not because they do it to earn the love, it's because they want to do it in light of the love that they experience. And God loves us too. Remember, the faith says he's called us back from rebellion and forgiven our sins. Our response should be that of Jesus. Though imperfectly in our present state, we will want to obey him and await the fullness of his mercy at the end of time. I think this is part of the reason why Jesus prepared to say the false teachers do not have the Spirit. They appear to claim Christ's forgiveness, but that was not producing an obedience to God. Instead, they just carried on what they were doing. We rightly love the gracious forgiveness of the gospel, but do we love the obedience? Do we delight in pleasing our loving Father? Well, Jude then turns uh, to those around them. And so having told his readers to attend to their own safety, he then asked them to look out uh, for others. So verse 22, uh, be merciful to those who doubt. Uh, There seem to be three groups. The first are the doubters, uh, and Jude asked us to be merciful to them. Perhaps these are people that have been intrigued by the claims of these false teachers, as we've seen the spiritual authenticity of this false gospel and the permissiveness to carry on behaving uh, as, as people did. It seems to be like the best of both worlds. We get the forgiveness, and really we don't need to change what we're doing. That would be attractive. That is attractive. And Jude asks us to be merciful to this group. It's not the temptation when faced with false teaching to be slightly pharisaical, try and display our own superiority. 
As a result, perhaps we appear slightly smug or unsympathetic or judgmental. But note Jude's command, be merciful to those who doubt, comes just after verse 21. Keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Are we sometimes in danger of forgetting that we were once under that judgment and that we are just, in, uh, just as much in need of his mercy? For the second group, uh, verse 23, we are to snatch others from the fire and save them. They seem to be uh, perhaps in the grip of the false teachers. They're in real danger. Uh, they appear to be in the fire. That's a reference back to that judgment that Jude has been talking about. Um, and we saw some of that picture in Zechariah that Marina was reading earlier. I don't know if you know the story of Kitty Genovese. Uh, she was a 28-year-old bar manager living in Queens, New York, and on the 13th of March, 1964, she was stabbed to death outside her apartment. A week later, her murderer was arrested and later sentenced to imprisonment. Terrible story, but perhaps no different to countless others in history. But what was noteworthy about her death was that two weeks later, the New York Times wrote an article about the murder. They'd sent their journalists out who'd spoken to countless witnesses who had seen the attack and yet none of them had seemingly intervened or called the police. Now, some have doubted uh, some of these details, but it's clear that many saw and heard what was going on and did nothing. And this response became known as the bystander effect, and it's been re reproduced in countless experiments subsequently. Now, this may have come as, sh as a shock to the New York Times and its readers, but it was no surprise to her killer. When Chief Detective Albert Seidman asked him why he dared to attack a woman, in front of so many people, he gave this answer. I knew they wouldn't do anything. People never do. And I suspect we know that temptation in our hearts also. What will we do in our conversations afterwards when we hear things that are odds, at, at odds with the faith entrusted to us? If you're like me, you'll probably smile politely, uh, nod quietly, maybe offer some weak counter-argument. Why? Well, I probably tell myself that it's just good that they're coming to church and that they're going to a small group. Uh, best not to be too heavy-handed. Uh, after all, they'll probably get there in the end if they keep coming. Or maybe I think that Tom or David is better placed to talk to them about uh, what the faith really means. But really, it's often because if I'm honest, uh, I'm not aware of the, or not, not thinking about the danger that they're in, and I care more about their ridicule or damage to a friendship if I speak up. But Jude reminds me that that is not good enough. That faith in verse 3 has been entrusted to me, to all of us. I am to know it and fight to preserve it. This letter wasn't written to church leaders, but the faithful, all Christians. And we are to intervene. And it will be dangerous. Snatching something from the fire is dangerous. We may well get our fingers burnt. But the fire... The judgment of God is a terrible thing. And I think that's why Jews spend so much time uh, talking about it in the middle section of the book. But by evoking this picture that we, we read of earlier in Zechariah, Jude is reminding us that even those facing God's judgment can be saved. God can snatch them from the fire, and we are the people he will use to save them. So finally, to this last group, probably the false teachers themselves. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. Well, I don't know about you, but this is a bit of a bombshell. 
Jude could hardly have painted a more disparaging picture of these people, and yet now he calls us to have mercy upon them. The translation here probably misses the strength of the original language. Their clothes are stained with human excrement. And see how he says the stained clothing is not from outside, but from their corrupted flesh. It is a vivid picture of what sin looks like, what it does to us. And we must be be very careful not to lose sight of its horror. Sin should grieve us, and all the more as we become more like Christ. And yet for these sinners who are leading others to the fire, Jude asks us to show them mercy. And note this call comes with a great warning that we are to be fearful of our interaction with them. It might be worth pointing out that this is uh, first and foremost teaching for those within the church. Um, Because they proclaim their own version of the gospel, we're to be very careful in our dealings with them. Jude has first asked the readers that they build themselves up. This is the job for the Christian rooted on a firm foundation and with a clear understanding of the faith. But nevertheless, the call is to show them mercy. And it's a powerful reminder of what God has done for us. And Jude asks us not to limit the Father's ability to save rebels. He saved you, friends, Jude says, and he can save these people too. Do you remember those verses in in Zechariah, chapter 3, those wonderful truths of verse 4? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin, and I will put fine garments on you. This is the very gospel that Jude has asked us to contend for, and here it is in action. Let us not forget the judgment that we deserved, and that it was only, only God who saved us. If we truly remember this, then we won't be tempted to limit God's grace and in so doing, just avoid the danger of changing the gospel a little. Well, finally, on to a perfect security. We started by asking how Jude's readers might have been feeling as we reached verse 16. The question Jude was posing is, can this fellowship survive? In light of Jude's encouragement and practical advice, no doubt many of the readers are now feeling enthused, energetic, ready for the fight, Uh, ready to fight for what they believe in and to rescue the church from the hands of the false teachers. But is it not possible that some may have been left feeling a little daunted or doubtful as to the real chances of their success? After all, we're all too aware of our own failing to live up to God's commands. And Jude appears to be asking those that have unwittingly presided over this problem to now fix it. Imagine you go to hospital uh, to undergo surgery. You meet the surgeon and he explains that a junior member of the team will be undertaking your procedure. He goes on to explain that only last week he did the same procedure, and he completely fouled it up. In fact, he seems oblivious to the danger that was going on until the surgeon pointed out to him how badly he was doing it. But the good news is that the surgeon has sat him down, he's warned him, he's given him some practical advice, and he really believes that's going to stand him in good stead. Well, from a a professional perspective, if that happens to you, I strongly recommend that you go and find another surgeon. And superficially, that appears to be the situation here, and certainly that's the temptation that we can fall into. How will these people succeed? But it isn't what Jude has been teaching, and indeed he returns now to the theme that has really underpinned this whole letter. These wonderful final verses are probably well known to all of us, but I hope that today they will be all the sweeter when we understand their original context. Let's look at them now. Verses 24 and 25. 
to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Saviour, be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. The whole purpose of this letter is to fight for this holy faith. And what is one of the fundamental truths of this faith? As we read earlier in Ephesians 2, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. It is God's work. You cannot do it yourselves, however hard you try. Jude is not asking for them to be spiritual superheroes. He's all too aware that left to their own devices, they would fall or stumble. I don't know if you picked up on this story from the London Marathon last year, uh, 2017. Uh, David Wyeth had run 26 miles and about 125 metres. It's 200 metres to go to the finish line. Um, If you want to be mildly amused, although you probably should feel sorry for him, watch the YouTube video of him as he turns into the mall. He's exhausted. He's delirious. He's no longer sort of running. He's got this sort of slightly bizarre jollopy gait. He veers from side to side, oblivious to the uh, the runners around him. And as he does so, a fellow runner, Matthew Reese, passes him. And as he does, he falls over. Matthew goes over to see if he can help. The collapsed runner is rather incoherent. He just keeps saying, I've got to finish, I've got to finish. And Matthew says, you will finish. He picks him up, he's barely able to stand. He points him towards the finish line and said, that's where we're heading. Another marshal comes to assist him, and he's virtually dragged across the finish line. His finishing time, 2 hours, 51 minutes and 8 seconds. I'd take that any day. Fantastic marathon time. He'd put months and months of careful preparation and training into this event. He was on the brink of finishing, just 200 metres away. And yet, left to his own devices, he'd have laid on the ground. The St John's Ambulance paramedics would have rushed over to him. The barriers would have been parted. They'd been whisked off to the ambulance for treatment. And when he looked up his finish time later... He would have been right down at the bottom. DNF. Did not finish. Jude has given us plenty to do in our Christian life, but we need a Matthew Reese, someone who will get us to the finish line, because we're not going to do it on our own. And there he is in verse 24, to him who is able to keep you from falling. And who is the him? Verse 25. The only God, our Saviour. How does he do it? Verse 25. Through Jesus, uh, to the, um, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, by his death and resurrection. Here in these two verses is the truth that they are fighting for. And because it's not our work, we're not going to sort of crawl through the back door and sort of hang at the back in case someone sees us and says, God, uh, there's some people here. Uh, they, sh- they definitely shouldn't be here. We need to get them out. No, Jews says not only will we be kept from falling, but we will be presented without fault and with great joy. God our Saviour presents us to himself, faultless and with great joy. God himself plucks us, away, uh, plucks us from the fire. He removes our filthy clothes and takes away our sin to replace them with rich garments. That will indeed be a day of great joy for us. And meditating on that, on the wonder of what God has done for us, will surely help us in our desire to be transformed uh, by him and by the Spirit. But I think the emphasis here is not so much on our joy, but God's joy, 
Many of you may know that book, uh, Knowing God by Packer. And in it, he says, for reasons we will never understand, God does not treat us as we deserve, but he resolves to bring us back to be with him in heaven. God saves not only for his glory, but his gladness. Such is the God of love. So Jude finishes his letter by returning to the faith that he's asked us to fight for, a saviour God rescuing and transforming a rebellious people so that they, can, so that they may one day be a faultless, holy people. How does he do this? Well, through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. How can we be sure he'll do it? Well, because he has all glory, majesty, power, and authority. How long has he had that? From before all ages, now, and forevermore. So to conclude, I hope there are some here who are yet to ask Jesus Christ to be Lord of their lives. If so, today would be a great day to do it. But if you're not ready, do come uh, and ask how you can find out more. Uh, Tom's uh, running this identity course on Wednesday evenings. That would be a great place to start. But do please hear God's call to come back to him. His judgment, as we've seen, is real and it's terrible. But through Jesus' death, he offers the free gift of salvation that knows no limits. If you are a Christian and this is your faith, is your foundation secure? If not, if you've drifted, make that your first priority. And let us help each other to do that. It's not a work to be carried out in isolation. And when it's secure, let's be ready to fight with every part of, uh, part of us for his holy faith. Sadly, those who would change the gospel are already here in the Western Church, and the consequences, as we've seen, are deadly for those led astray. So if so, let's commit to do this work together, prayerfully, and in the knowledge that he who is able to keep us from falling and has all glory, majesty, power, and authority will ensure that his holy faith will do his work. Let us pray. Father God, we wonder at the privilege of your rescue, of the faith that you've given us. Father, I pray that we would uh, delight in reading your word, uh, that it would uh, fill every part of us, that we would know it in our hearts and our minds, and that we we would be prepared to fight for it, whatever the cost, knowing that you promise uh, a wonderful future for those that are saved by it. So we ask this in your name. Amen.